Welcome to the J-Pod, a High Library production. I'm your host, librarian Josh Cohen. Today I'd like to welcome a very special guest, Dr. Mark Harmon, Professor Emeritus of German and English at Elizabethtown College. Mark taught German and Irish literature at the college for 22 years. He is an award-winning translator, notably of the fiction of Franz Kafka, about whom we'll be talking today. His translation of Kafka's novel, The Castle, won the Lois Roth Award of the Modern Language Association. Other notable translations include another one of Kafka's uh, novels, America, the Missing Person, uh, also the German poet uh, Rainer Maria Rilke's classic Letters to a Young Poet. Hopefully I pronounced his name correctly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, recent publications include his essay, Borges Translates Joyce, who translates himself, which appeared in the New England Review earlier this year, and he also uh, recently uh, wrote a book chapter on translating Kafka that appeared in Carolyn Duttlinger's book, uh, Franz Kafka in Context. Today's episode will actually be on the subject of translating Kafka, specifically focusing on Mark's recent work on translating Kafka's classic short story, commonly titled The Metamorphosis in English, but which Mark entitles The Transformation. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I should note that Mark has been working on a collection of Kafka stories with annotations, and there's still a work in progress, including the one that we'll be discussing today. Uh, Again, welcome to the podcast, Mark. So for those unfamiliar with the story we're going to be discussing today, it follows the strange and sad circumstances of a young man named Gregor Samsa, who lives with his parents and sister and wakes one morning to find he's been somehow mysteriously transformed overnight into an enormous insect or pest of some kind. And this leaves him in a very vulnerable state. Unfortunately, unlike Spider-Man, Gregor has no superpowers uh, (laughs) from his transformation. So Mm -hmm. my first question uh, has to be about the title of your translation, Mark. The story, as I noted earlier, has been commonly titled The Metamorphosis in English. You've chosen a different translation for the title, calling it The Transformation. Uh, You explain the choice in a footnote, but uh, could you explain to our listeners this choice, why you decided to go with that that different Mm -hmm. title? Well, I'm not the first one to do it, uh, but uh, it seems important to me to call it by, by a title that is close enough to what Kafka chose. I mean, Kafka could have called it de-metamorphosis, the metamorphosis. He chose, he chose not to call it that. Said he called it de-verwandlung, and, uh, which is a much less flowery and uh, scientific or literary uh, term, if you will, than, uh, than metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. So he deliberately made it unliterary. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I notice that's a, that's a choice that you often mm-hmm. seem to make when you're translating Kafka, mm-hmm. is trying to, uh, as, as close as possible, possible, stick to the style of, mm-hmm. of Kafka's original German. Yeah, and I think that is, is uh, especially in the case of a classic, writer, classic modern writer like Kafka, that is an important thing, especially for a retranslation, to, to get closer to the original, because the first translators, they were trying to... Talking about the help, mirror. Uh, yeah, the, the mirror, mirror trans- translation. Yes. Uh, so just so for, for listeners who don't know, uh, the the first, I guess, most popular translation mm-hmm. of Kafka's work 
was by a, a couple uh, by the last name of Muir, uh, who you're referring to. Yes, and, and uh, Edwin Muir was a, was a well-established poet. He still read his poetry. She was she, she knew German actually better than he did. Uh, so it was it was a very interesting duo, you know, translating Kafka. But of course, at the time, they were actually translating Kafka while he was writing the Castle, not too far away, because mm. they were in Prague. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, these are these Americans or no, British? No, they're, they're Scottish. Scottish. Okay. Yeah, both of them. Okay. And, and since, very I'm, Scottish I'm, since I'm Irish, I, I think there's some kind of there's some kind of interest <laughs> parallel from that, yeah, area. background from as yeah. a translator than than they had, perhaps. So I guess what you were saying is that sort of their translation tends to try to be more literary in that approach than than Kafka maybe was in his use of the language himself. Yes, uh, I mean, of course, you know, he also changed our view of what literary is, and uh, you know, yeah. so that. He opted for for a plain style, yeah, and um, that was not common at the time. You know, you had the German expressionists who went in for theatrical exaggeration, um, uh, you know, very emotive kind of writing with lots of exclamation points, and uh, you know, Kafka stayed away from all that and decided that he could do a lot with uh, straightforward prose, which, however, always has undercurrents. And that, that's one of the secrets of translating Kafka, is trying to uh, bring into the English or whatever language you're translating into those undercurrents that, that are not easily visible uh, on the surface. And the key to getting the full effect of Kafka is um, hearing the prose read aloud. Mm-hmm which he himself did, and I just want to read a description by him of his reading about a year and a half after he wrote the story. Uh, he, he, he gave a reading at his friend Max Brode, who was a very important figure because he helped uh, establish Kafka's name um, by publishing his works after his friend's death at the age of 41 of tuberculosis. So anyway, he's, he's, uh, the reading is at Brode's, uh, Max Brode's apartment. So Kafka writes, A pleasant evening at Max's. I read myself into a frenzy with my story, but then we did let ourselves go and laughed a lot. If one bolts the doors and windows against the world, one can from time to time create the semblance and almost the beginning of the reality of a beautiful life. So you've got, you've got a lot of things in there. You've got, first of all, they laughed. So humor was important to the original audience of the story and to Kafka himself. But then frenzy, you're, you're, you know, you're getting into other terrain with that emotional terrain. And then also you've got a sense of a beautiful life, but it's somehow beyond the grasp. You know, it's, it's somehow lo- uh, you have to bolt the doors and the windows to have access <laughs> to what kind of beautiful life. So mm-hmm. you've got paradox in there too. Now this is this is a is this a diary entry or a letter to somebody? It's a letter to his uh, girlfriend and then future fiance um, Felix Bauer, with whom he had a long, complex relationship. And actually, that's significant for the story because he he comments a lot on metamorphosis on the writing of metamorphosis in his correspondence with her, mm. and it's daily, almost daily correspondence. Yeah. Sometimes even a couple of times a day, believe it or not. 
So she lived, she lived in a different country, a different town? She lived or? in Berlin. Okay. Um, and he was, at the time, in, in, in Hungary? Prague, in, in Prague. Prague. In, in, yeah, Prague. Uh, well, it wasn't Hungary in, then. Austro-Hungarian. Yeah, it wasn't Hungary then. Um, so, speaking and of and Perhaps the we should say a word about... Uh, he lived in the center of Prague, which is now a big tourist mecca. Uh, but at the time, it uh, and tourism around Kafka. Yeah, I mean, tourism yeah. around Kafka. Yeah. Um, if you want any postcards, etc., you'll find plenty. Yeah, of sure. Cards. Lots of bug, <laughs> the bug related are, things, right? That's right. Well, even Google has a, you know, on, on some. I don't know what the occasion was. Maybe it was Kafka's birthday. They had to probably. They had yeah, a, they, they do had, this. They had the yeah. insect. But but at the time, it was Kafka Circle. They were German-speaking Jews. And they had the whole, uh, you know, a, a subculture within Prague, uh, which was largely Czech-speaking. There were also Germans who were not Jews, but 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 the the whole cultural enterprise the, there was Jews predominated in the German-speaking uh, culture of Prague, which had its own newspapers, theaters, uh, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, I was going to ask you a question about about his Jewishness, but I want to first ask you about something you brought up. A little bit earlier, which was you were talking about the comic elements, and I feel like there are definitely clear absurdist comic elements in Kafka's writing, uh, and sometimes they're overlooked. And I know that you know from talking to you before, this is an aspect of his writing that's important to you. Particularly, this story has a lot of elements of sort of a horrifying nightmare, but there are comic elements. Can you tell me a little bit about Kafka's humor specific to this story? and how you get those elements into your translation. Well, you know, as, 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 as I think we may have indicated already, Kafka himself cherished the, the, the humorous nature of his prose, or, or the humorous elements in his prose. I mean, that he could laugh aloud uh, about, uh, about a story that is fundamentally sad and tragic. Yeah. Um, and and another key to in that in that passage that I read that I just read is that the importance of reading it aloud. And I think one reason why readers sometimes have difficulty seeing the humor in Kafka is that the on a silent reading, uh, you often miss the nuances. Mm. Whereas if you listen to it, uh, being told by somebody who reads well. In fact, I had an experience of this. I was in. Vienna at the, Ch- at the Czech Cultural Center in Vienna and I gave a reading of my translation of the castle and there was a woman there and actually my brother worked in, in Vienna at the time and, and she worked for him and uh, so she had prepared you know for my reading by reading you know a significant part of it in German uh, beforehand and I had said something about humor and she said to me beforehand Listen, I read 60 pages of that damn book, and I d- not alone did I not laugh, I didn't even once smile. But the funny, then, then I, I read it in English, and I could hear her laughing. So, uh, you know, it's, it, and it's not, I'm not I'm pat, patting myself on the back, I'm just saying that read aloud, it, it, has, a, it has a different effect. Hmm. Now, what are the parts of the story that people, when you read, that people laughed at? Or were there, were there particular, like, scenarios or just particular sentences or particular words that triggered a humorous... Well, I didn't talk with them enough about it, and she didn't, you know, I, uh, that was hard uh, to figure out what they were laughing at. But, <laughs> but, okay. uh, but, but I think one reason why they didn't laugh is that 
you know, he used a lot of Austrian expressions, which, which still exist in the German that's spoken in Austria, which are, you know, seem strange to other German speakers. Like, for instance, there's a word in the Cascade, he uses Parteienverkehr, which is a very bureaucratic term. And literally it means intercourse between the parties. But it's a word for officers. You know, but it goes back to the old feudal thing of the subjects came and they made pleas or whatever, entreaties before the high lords of the bureaucracy or the aristocrats or whatever. And they'd be received and then they'd presumably at some point get a response to their pleas. Uh, but, you know, officers and that. Uh, whereas Kafka uses it in the sense of officers, but he also uses it in the sense of Intercourse, the sexual meaning. Right, of it, making puns. Parties, yeah. and then it's, it's feminine, the party, and, and it's male, and there are two, you know, uh, all kinds of innuendo. Mm. That might be lost. That might Depending be lost. on how it's translated. Yeah. yeah. That, that, is, that is tricky. I mean, certainly communicating, I think, comedy or something that's supposed to be comedic that is even like 15 years old mm-hmm. in, in a, let's say, the, in America mm-hmm. is hard to necessarily communicate. Sometimes sometimes it gets lost. Mm-hmm. And okay. trying to do that from a completely different cultural perspective, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Prague, you know, during this time period, obviously, you know, that makes it even more of a challenge, I would think. Yeah, well, the, the book I'm, I'm currently uh, working on, uh, the the annotations will be on the same page as the stories, and that will hopefully uh, cue readers into some of the less accessible elements uh, of the story without bombarding them with interpretations. Mm. Because I think Kafka himself believed that it was up to the reader to interpret. He was not going to offer any suggestions, and he didn't really comment on this story. In fact, uh, somebody, uh, a, a gentleman called Wolf, uh, Siegfried Wolf, he was a doctor in Berlin, but he wrote to Kafka and he said, Doctor, I bought this from my, uh, my cousin, and uh, she can't make head or tails of it, and I can't help her. Please help me. Tell me what she's, she should make of it. And there's no record that Kafka answered the letter, because even though you know, he was normally very polite, he was not going to tell somebody what it meant. But that was somebody else. Speaking that, of... That was the reader's yeah. responsibility. Speaking of meaning, in the very first sentence, you write that Gregor found himself transformed into a, quote, enormous insect. And the first image of what exactly Gregor has turned into has been translated various ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always, personally, I always imagined a cockroach for some reason. But I know that Kafka's term, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but... Ungezifer? Ungezifer. Ungezifer, okay, is is more ambiguous. And you note that the German word uh, is ambiguous, and there seems to be a lot of ambiguity in the story and in Kafka's work in general. And I'm curious to know, uh, I mean, you you just mentioned, you know, that he liked liked things to be open to interpretation, but certainly having ambiguity is one way to do that. Do you think that the ambiguity is meant to unsettle the reader at all? Because uh, he could have chosen to name a specific insect, and he purposely chose this sort of vague or ambiguous word. Well, I think it goes with his idea of uh, not to hand things uh, on a platter to readers. You know, it's like, this is the story, and this is what it means. 
you know, like in a 19th century novel, everything is explained. In great detail, yeah. In great detail. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't going to do that. Um, so I suppose it's, that's one of the modern aspects of his art. And is it is it more unsettling? Do you think at all to have it be more ambiguous? Yes, I, 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 it, it can be. Uh, it can be. Like for instance, uh, well, actually, I think of Beckett. Beckett once said, "Bring your own aspirin." You know, he said about waiting for Godot. In other words, he wasn't going to help you with the headache that the prey might give you. you know, yeah. Bring your own aspirin. And I don't think Kafka would have quite used that that a phrase like that, but. He wanted things to be open, uh, open to interpretation, and um, and I think that's the way he wrote. He had problems with making decisions, and um, I don't know if that indecisiveness somehow is also reflected in his art. I mean, that's 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 a difficult question. And do you, do you think that an allegorical reading of of Kafka is an oversimplification? Uh, oh yes, yeah, that's gone completely. That, that sort of it, was it, the original. It, it was the approach. original approach, and and it was actually Kafka's great friend Max Brod, who did great things. He saved Kafka's work from destruction because Kafka told him to destroy his work after he died. The, the, the unpublished work, right? Yes, his, 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 his unpublished work. But he hadn't published much, mu- much during his life. Just so. stories, right? Yeah, stories. Yeah. Yeah. None of the novels had appeared. So he essentially told him to, to destroy it, and um, Max Brod declined. Yes. Well, they were also unfinished, so maybe yeah. he was, that was part of it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, was a, he had a very high-quality control, and yeah, perfectionist. Uh, perfectionist. Kind of. Even this story, you know, he, he said uh, he had to go on a trip, and it was just funny because Gregor Samsa is also a, a traveler. Right. And Kafka had to travel for, you know, his work as an accident insurance lawyer, going in specs factories. And so he was very aware. People often think of him, you know, crazy Franz Kafka. He had a he had a day job that was very demanding. He ended up as the high executive of the company, secretary of the company, which was a big, big deal. Um, he was he was hugely praised for his conceptual ability as a as a legal you know drafting legal opinions or writing legal opinions and, and reports for the for the, for the institution. Well, he certainly has a lot in common with Gregor Samsa, which which in terms of like you know the fact that he was living with his parents and helping mm-hmm. support them and frustrated and sort of alienated and that's another maybe oversimplification in, in terms of analyzing the story as strictly autobiographical. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, it can be narrowing, but at the same time, there's something very personal about Kafka's writing always. I mean, yeah. Especially in this story. Right? Yeah. Uh, especially in this story, but I, 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 I would suggest always. Um, you know, it's never just a game. You know, it's not, it's not like some experimental artist who sits down. How am I going to create this incredibly complex thing just for the sake of creating it. Kafka was always trying to work out things and that's one reason why this I think this story should be called the transformation because Kafka was always yearning for transformation in his own life. Mm. And in fact while he was writing the story in the correspondence with his girlfriend Felix Bauer, he he used that term transformations for Wandlungen to talk about how he had changed as a child, and um, do you think he viewed himself as having turned into something um, uh, horrifying or monstrous? 
yeah, he often did have metaphors of you know turning into an animal or uh, you know his 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 fingers becoming his his arms being so distant from the rest of his body. You know, you can see the beginnings in, in his imagination of him turning into something. And, and in the letters to Felice, he talk about that he has arm. You know, he has fingers like a monkey's, and uh, hmm. no, that that he is monkey-like. Sometimes humorously, but sometimes, you know, they're coming out of some obsession with negative self-images or whatever. Mm. Um, but one has to be careful. And he was a great artist, and, and he was a great shaper of his material, and that is what enables his work to survive, not any connections with his personal dilemmas. Well, that's... Or, that's you a, know, that's that, a the, good... The crazy Franz This Kafka, This story uh, in particular, though, I, I think out of all of his writing probably resonates the most um, it's been adapted you know multiple times for film for mm-hmm. TV it even inspired I think we were talking once about the the video game that was created uh, a couple years ago why do you think this story continues to have such cultural resonance uh, above maybe all of his other other works I think it's a very it, it's it's a story that vividly presents an experience that modern readers can relate to. I mean, uh, not feeling, not knowing who one is, not knowing whether one is really connected with the world around one. Uh, and if you just think of the dilemmas of Gregor Samsa, you know, the overpowering nature of work, it's taking over the rest of life, the unease with the modern world, with the demands of the modern workplace, even surveillance, you know, that has become much more of a problem. It's already in Kafka, you know, that he's a little late for work. So they send somebody to the railway station to check up on the train that's bringing him. And of course, nowadays we, we have all these gadgets that do that. Right. Uh, but it's as if Kafka is always in the present or even in our future because uh, he had such acute antennae that he sensed things that were you know, as they were arising before most people perceived them. Of course, you know, alienation is something that Marx talked about in the 19th century, you know, industrial civilization and and all the the negative sides of that. But Kafka, you know, had his own very distinct take take on it. Do you recall what year the, the story was first published? 1912. 1912. Yeah, I knew it was early 20th century, but I couldn't remember the exact date. Well, wait, wait. So, no, 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 no. It was written, sorry, I missed it. It was uh, written in 1912. It was uh, 1915. was when it was actually published. Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I think it's also viewed as a particularly revolutionary story mm-hmm. uh, for that time period. I mean, I don't think anybody else was writing uh, fiction quite like this story. Would you say that's, that's fairly accurate? I mean, it was... Yeah. Yes, absolutely, and and in fact, you know, just as as I mentioned that that gentleman rising, you know, what the hell does this mean? You know, so that that would be say your average, you know, educated reader, but still, you know, totally bewildered by the story. And then you had a great writer like Robert Musel, who uh, an Austrian novelist, author of The Man Without Qualities. Uh, but he he accepted it for a journal called the Neue Rundschau which is, you know, the great journal, literary journal at the time, it still exists. And um, he, uh, but but then the the editors said to Kafka, you've got to shorten it. Yeah, it was a, his longest story, right? Yeah. yeah. 
but but you know, imagine asking to a masterpiece, you know, to for a masterpiece to make some like, cards, you know, so that you can include some lackadaisical, like you know, ordinary run-of-the-mill story. Right, it just right. shows that there was resistance to it, and and some of the things pe- reviewers wrote were kind of like, ah, what the hell is this? You know, I mean, it's yeah, it's boring. They even said it was boring. You know, imagine boring. Wouldn't be the first word that comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you think of the opening, it's like the opening of a horror film. It's boring. Well. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about your translation process for this story, or or in general? Were there any challenges, you know, that you came across as you as you were working on this? I don't know if it, it's it's fame made it a, a challenge uh, uh, from the outset, but. And, and I would say, you know, thinking about the nature of the task facing literary translators, it's partly determined by the qualities of the text, or the qualities that we detect in the, in the original text. In my case, this means I take a different approach in translating present-day authors than I do with, say, Kafka. In translating present-day German-language authors, I've mostly done short fiction, I see the primary goal as making their work accessible to English-speaking readers. In the case of Kafka, I see the task differently. He's been translated many times since the Muirs, whom we mentioned, the the original translators. But I see my task as trying to create an English version that brings out qualities qualities in Kafka. What are those qualities? Well, uh, one is precision that he's a very precise writer. And and I mentioned already the connection with his legal writing. And he also had, he had a great, great precision also in his, write, in his letters, his correspondence, his diaries. There's a huge amount of detail. He's a great man for detail. Uh, but he had total mastery of deep de- de- detail and the ability to shape detail. And it's somehow, it's his ability to... Uh, bring together all this detail about the family and the interrelationships between them and Gregor Samza and his thoughts and um, that creates such a moving drama and it is a kind of drama there's something rather theatrical about the story yeah so I mean did that how did that impact your did you find it to be a, a fairly straightforward process for you of uh, like a sort of Workman, kind of okay. I'm going to translate this, or or did you did you find that there were any difficulties? Because maybe maybe in part because of the ambiguity he uses in his language. Yeah, there were lots of difficulties. One thing is, you know, the precision I mentioned. You know, if you go too far with that, then you lose the the fluency that's also there in his writing. And you know, there was a spontaneous spontaneity in his writing process. The previous story, the judgment he wrote in one night. This one he wrote in a couple of weeks. And even then, he had no idea. He thought it was going to be a little story. But it ended up quite a humongous, a long story. It's a novella, really, and it's yeah. it's not a short story. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's not. a lot of writers, you know, resort to, you know, shore themselves up with, you know, some kind of outline or something like that. He didn't do that at all which created problems when he was writing a novel because it's hard to keep all that in your head and, and you know, get to the other end. So it, w- with the precision, you know, I would sometimes have to relax the precision to, cre- to give, have more of that sense of fluency because uh, 
English is a great flexible language, but it's often not very precise. Now, Ger German, other languages tend to be more precise than English, actually. Now, when you talk about uh, precision, yeah. I've read you discussing Kafka and his use of his not always being very concise and and sometimes using like things like repetition that yes. some translators might see as redundant yes. or and, yeah. and you disagree with that can you tell me yeah. a little bit about yeah well you know that. everything about Kafka's paradoxical so he's precise but then he can also be deliberately repetitive uh, he uses a lot of perhaps maybe and there was one English scholar and he wrote Let's get rid of most of these perhapses and maybes, you know? Yeah. But you get rid of Kafka's voice if you do that. Right. You, you, you want to edit it. There's a yeah. part of the, probably the editor. It's yeah. like, oh, well, I, I would edit this if it was mine. Yeah, that's right. But it's not yours. It's, yeah, it's Kafka's yeah, and you're translating, right? right? Yeah. So, there yeah. has to, as a translator, you have to have respect for the voice. Yeah. And, and even if you don't even like it at, at times. But, well, you but talked I about don't believe in that kind of editing out of things that we now think is not, you know, high style. Yeah. Maybe he wasn't aiming for high high style. And there are some people say, you know, question whether he wrote good German, you know. But but that's probably true of a lot of great writers, is that they they question the good, you know, version of the language that other What's grammatical or yes, yeah. yeah, all always, you know, obeying all the conventions and and at times he did, and at times he didn't. You know, he was a, he was a very natty dresser, for instance. I mean, he was very um, very careful when he was going out in public, and and often his prose is like that too. But at other times, it's pretty unbuttoned, and he can he can let himself go, and the characters go, and they give speeches. Gregor at times gives speeches that are a little windy, but you know he's mad. You know, and of course the funny thing about it is that Gregor's speech is actually being translated for us by the narrator because nobody can understand it. So right. the narrator is silently translated. Right, because he's got like, he sounds like a bug, yeah. of an insect and not yeah. the human that yes. he thinks he's making sounds of so so intelligible language. So the narrator know. is translating uh, into human language what he thinks he's saying. trying to express, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've also, as I mentioned at the very beginning, translated a number of Kafka's uh, novels. Has the experience translating stories been different uh, from uh, easier or in any way different from translating the novels? Well, uh, or no I, different. Well, it, it is different in the sense that uh, his style is different each time. Hmm. Yeah, he doesn't repeat himself in terms of, you know, he, the style reflects what he's trying to do. In that particular story. In that particular novel. story, yeah. Okay. Uh, whereas, whereas in a novel, you know, that wouldn't work with a new style, unless you're James Joyce and have a different style for right. each chapter. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that creates uh, some other issues. Yeah. And as you've been translating different stories, has there been one that you've particularly enjoyed working on or one you've hated working on? Uh, funnily enough, I, 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 this was not my favorite story, uh, um, The Transformation, uh, for a long time. I really liked The Judgment, which, which is a similar theme, you know, father-son uh, relationship or lack of relationship or hostile relationship. But uh, what was what was the what did you prefer in the judgment? Uh, 
Well, it's just such such spontaneity in the creation of it, and and you can feel that in the style. You know that he just sat down, and he originally thought that it was going to be about some man, uh, a man looking out the window. That's about the only thing that's kept, and then some people crossing a bridge, and and something about war, and it turns out to be a kind of domestic tragedy, just as this one is. But he, he that's not what he intended to write at all. So, you know, his pen took over and he just wrote and very few changes, just straight out. Hmm. And, you know, there's something, you know, you wouldn't think Kafka and Mozart would have much in common, but there's some kind of natural ability there that's just stunning. I mean. hmm. uh, and then I thought this one, oh, you know, it's, it's a bit, uh, a lot of work went into it. It seemed more chiseled and uh, crafted. calculated, yeah. crafted. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, classical as opposed to romantic, and I was going with the romantic creation. And well, I yeah. thought you were going to say that it annoyed you because of its fame and because of just being so getting so much attention over any of the other stuff. No, I, I don't think it was that so much uh, uh, as as uh, yeah, what I just said, and also I suppose that Feeling I was reading it in German, in German, and it's even you know it's so rich the story that. In German, you know, German can be more compact than English, actually. You know, those, those long sentences can pack a huge amount in. And I know there's long it's, German words. Yes. That have like <laughs> so it's very, you know, it takes a while, you know, as a non-native speaker. I mean, I speak it pretty fluently, but I'm a reader. But, uh, uh, you know, unpacking it, it takes more effort than unpacking an English, a comparable English sentence, because somehow English has to simplify things or spread them out a bit more. So, so maybe you know the act of translating has made me a, a big fan, of, a bigger fan of this story than I was before. I oh, interesting. I went about it. Yeah, and yeah. there's always more to say and learn about it. And, and since this translation includes extensive annotation, can you explain the process you've gone through in trying to determine? What to footnote? What to what to not footnote? Uh, yeah, Curious well, uh, that 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 was quite com- complicated because, you know, I would I would think, okay, I'm going to make a comment here, uh, but then I would say, well, if I have to point this out about something that's missing in the translation, can couldn't I possibly work it in mm-hmm. into the English? Yeah, you know, rather than saying in German, this blah blah blah. So uh, there was a bit of more back and forth than than I'd bargained with mm. at the outset. Yeah, you know that at some point you just have to say that's it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not doing any more back and forth. Yeah, I mean, did you enjoy the footnoting process and providing you know historical background on certain words or certain things about Kafka's life or his writing? Or did you just prefer, do you prefer to just do the translating of the text and that the footnotes are something like you have to do? No, I thought it was a privilege to do it. I mean, okay. to, have, to have one's words on the same page as, as Kafka's yeah. story. I mean, is, yeah, is, yeah. Is, is quite is quite an honor, and uh, and it also brings you know all the years I've spent with Kafka. I mean, I haven't been just as a translator, but as a scholar and teacher and so on and so forth. So bringing, you know, the fruit of those years, uh, or whatever, what one has picked up in those years to bear on the actual text. And I think uh, close attention to the actual text is key, because he's he's such a great 
artist. Yeah. That perhaps there's too much emphasis on interpretation. So did you try to keep keep yourself from doing that interpreting yes, when you yes, were writing yes. the annotation? You know, because because I, I you know my my position is a bit like his that I I don't want to nudge the reader towards any one interpretation because there are many possible ways of looking at it. But but I think you know Susan Sontag uh, in, in a bo- uh, had an essay, a very influential essay at the time called "Against Interpretation." You know that she was emphasizing the sensuality of art, the thinness of art, and and this excessive intellectualization can destroy art, or it can be inimical to art. And with Kafka, I think she has a point. Yeah, uh, especially when it's when it's. And has that level of ambiguity? We're trying to pin it down. That's right. You know, so the, so often like an entomologist. I'm just yeah, kidding. Just yeah. a bad joke. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're you're almost bringing up uh, the name of Vladimir Nabokov. Oh yes. Who, who was an entomologist and and who actually thought that he knew exactly that what he could pin it down. He was and and he drew, who drew the bug for oh. the students at Cornell. So what kind of bug did? You think well, it I was? Can't, I can't even remember what, but, 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 but what particular genre or species. But he had a very specific one and could thought he could draw it. Uh, however, I would really recommend his his his. It's actually a lecture on metamorphosis that he would give at Cornell, and and it's one of the best things written about Kafka uh, because he he actually pays attention to what's happening on the page. You know, there are three lodges. Why are there three lodges? Three keep, keeps coming back. He looks at triads, the number three, uh, three parts of the tri- tripartite story. Uh, you know, so he's not going on. It's about existentialism or something sure, like that. Something he, abstract, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's looking as a writer at how Kafka crafted the story. Hmm. Well, I, I want to sort of end on... Uh, on a, uh, sort of backing up a little bit and ask, uh, there might be people listening who have who have not read Kafka. Mm-hmm. What is it if you were if you were trying to make an argument to somebody why they should read Kafka? What what, what argument would you make for his importance or for 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 a reason why somebody ought to ought to give him a shot? I think you're living in the real, uh, you know, in the real world, which is the modern world, a world of technology, and uh, uh, where where we all feel under pressure, partly because of these new in, in inventions. That would be one reason. He's a very modern writer, even though, you know, he, he, he well, he wrote this story in 1912, so that's uh, quite a few years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Uh, and yet it's, it's as modern as anything that's coming out of the presses these days. So uh, it's, it's news that stays news, his writing. And news that will, b- people in 50 years' time will see different things because reality will have changed and they'll find anticipations of that in Kafka's writing because it's so, he had such an ability to... Um, to imagine and to create a world that uh, spoke of many things to many people. I mean, the, in China, he's considered a Chinese author because he, he wrote 
stories that are take place in, in China, and they seem so authentically Chinese. Mm. So he's an amazing writer. Very many different aspects, and the more you read of him, the more fascinated you may become. Uh, he, his penetration into English-speaking culture mm. is at a level where he has his own adjective. Mm -hmm. uh, Kafka asks, I feel like you have to be pretty important as a, as, a, as a fiction writer to have your own adjective. And we were talking earlier about how, how much his work has penetrated the culture with, you know, uh, uh, and being important enough and influential enough that people are still wanting to reinterpret it, wanting to talk back to it. That, that seems to be another, like you're talking about the, the, the modernity of it. Mm -hmm. it it's, still, yeah. it's still a story that mm -hmm. holds the cult, like captures something in the, in the zeitgeist. Absolutely, the absolutely. And, and, you know, the, I was uh, emphasizing that the, 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 the negativity of some of the over-interpretation of Kafka, but there's no denying that his texts cry out for interpretation, but at the same time resist interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe a very essential, uh, a very modern feature. Mm. You know, because it's not Agatha Christie. I mean, Ag Agatha right. Christie always solved the murder. Right. Uh, but Kafka doesn't, and a lot of modern writing doesn't, and modern life doesn't either, perhaps. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Ah, enjoyed the talk. Thank you for listening to The J-Pod, a High Library production. I'm your host, librarian Josh Cohen. Be sure to check back in with us for another episode from the E-Town College community. If you have any ideas for future episodes or feedback, please email me at cohenjp.com at etown.edu.